0: Do you guys know who that is? Her name is Megan Fate. She's well-known at the lake. Oh, man, that rhymed. I tell you, man, when I listen to those things, I just start rhyming, and I don't even try, you know? Um, But Megan, this is not in my notes or anything, but Megan lost her husband suddenly about a year and a half ago. She has two kids. And I watched these videos ahead of time as I was getting ready to share with you um, a few weeks ago. And I was like, oh, Megan, cool. I love Megan. Great. And then just now I was sitting back there. I was hearing Megan testify about this book. And um, she has experienced unimaginable pain. Unimaginable pain. She has two little kids she has to raise by herself. And yet, for years, she's been proclaiming that this book is true, everything about it. And yet, after losing her husband, she's still saying this book is true. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just so touched as I think about that. And, and so the question you have to ask yourself is, is she the biggest fool After all that she's done for God, that's going to happen. How can she still proclaim this book is true? How can she put her trust in it? So either she's the greatest fool or this book is absolutely true. And that even in the most darkest, deepest pit she has ever been in, who else should she go to? In the words of the apostle Peter, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Whom else should we go to? And my hope is that God would use this week, this session, the people in your life, your churches, to give you that kind of rock-solid confidence that this is God's word, this is a solid rock you can put your hope in and all of your life in, that even if you are just one phone call away from the worst day of your life, all of you. And if even if that moment comes that you can say, God is good. I don't understand God, but your word is true and I can bank my life on it. And like King David, I shared that passage last session in Psalm 31. He says, God, you are the God of what? Truth. And I entrust my spirit to you, even though I'm being hunted like a dog and you promised I'd be king and I'm still not king. That's the kind of truth. See, if you poll the average American, uh, uh, what is the Bible God's word? Believe it or not, despite how crazy our culture is, a large percentage will still say that they believe this is God's word. And if I were to poll you guys right now publicly, a lot of you would say this is God's word. But functionally, you don't believe it's God's word. Functionally, it's the last thing that you look at. Functionally, you look at Instagram in the morning or TikTok, you don't open God's word. Functionally, this thing is not that important to you because you truly inside of your heart don't understand God's word like Megan Fate understands God's word. And my prayer is that you would have that, that I would have that, a fresh level this morning, this evening. So with that, the stakes lay down. Remember, we're not talking about ice cream kind of truth, preferential, subjective truth. Oh, you know, that Bible is good for you. You know, the Book of Mormon's good for me. It burns in my heart. I, I like that book. Or, oh, no, no. Well, you know what? Uh, the, the, the more, uh, the Quran is good for me or, or this philosophy book is good. Whatever is good for you. No, no, we're not talking about the kind of truth. We're talking about insulin kind of truth, objective truth. Either this, everything about this book is true or none of it is true. And so with that, let's pray with that kind of mindset, that kind of desperation. Father, I know this word is true. You know the many, many hours I've wept on my knees as I've wrestled with apparent contradictions and times that your word didn't make sense and times that I struggled if this is your word and time and time again you met me in my skepticism and my doubt and my unbelief and over the years of faithfulness of seeing you show up seeing you move your words illuminating the darkness in my heart I have grown in great confidence that this is your word that this is actually from heaven and yet I know that many students here are not there yet many want to be there some of them don't want to be there but regardless of where we are at this evening would you meet us and give us a fresh confidence and revelation that this is your word would you speak through me and that there will be something inside of every heart by your spirit that would confirm and there'll be a ring of truth saying that is true I don't know what's true in life, but I know that is true, that there there would be a sense that is supernatural for me that you would confirm. Would you help me be a faithful servant of these students right now? Would you empower me to be clear, to be concise, and tell them the truth and nothing but the truth? So help me, God. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. So this evening, if you're not very observant, we're talking about the Bible, Is this book true? Is this book um, a book written by man about God? Or is this a book from God to man? from God to us, or is it, as many in our culture say, you know, another thing where it's a bunch of old white men creating different things for us, handing it down, furthering the patriarchy, furthering the power dynamics? Or is, this, is this some book that's been con- concocted by the powers that be to manipulate the masses like you and me? Those are good questions to ask. Let me tell you a story about a friend I just made named Craig. He's a new friend. Um, I met him at the golf course a couple weeks ago. And um, very quickly on, um, got to know him a little bit. He's 72. He's a retired dentist. And um, he asked me what I do. He was actually one of the guys. He was like, oh, are you 24, you know? Um, And I said, no, no, 10 years off, bud. Um, But I, I told him I'm a pastor, And one of the things that happens if you're a pastor and you tell people you're a pastor, people are like, oh, and then they start telling you, like, people they know who are a pastor or, like, some sort of vague religious, you know, kind of uh, reference to, to, like, maybe make me feel better or something like that, right? Like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I know something about that, right? And what Craig did without my invitation is that for the next 20 minutes told me miracle after miracle in his life of how he knew God was real. Or some sort of God. Silly stories like he was talking to his friends about God, and then they're like, It wouldn't be funny if we shot a hole in one because we were talking about God, and he got a hole in one. He's like, Look, God's real, right? I was like, Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and then he told me this crazy story about some angel and some, his, his nephew who died. And, and right when he was driving to the funeral, the nephew came and said, Dad, uh, Uncle, I got my wings, and all that kind of stuff. And he just shared all these strange stories. And at the end of it, he said, you know, I think every single time God did those stories for me, um, he was saying, Craig, I'm trying to show you I'm real, right? And, And then I eventually got a word in. I said, Craig, how have you lived your life differently because of those experiences? How did that change the way you live? So then Craig just starts to tell me, well, you know, Sam, I'm not a really religious guy. I don't go to church, don't do anything, but I try to live a good life. I'm pretty consistent. I'm a good guy. Um, and, and I don't pray much, but, but when I do, I apologize to God um, and I pray for emergencies because I don't want to bother him or whoever he is. He's like, I just say God, but it could be some other higher power. I don't know. It's just some power. And I said, Craig, what if God wants to be bothered by you? <laughs> what if he wants to hear your voice? What if he wants you to know him? And what if he's not like you think? Craig just kind of gave me a look. I said, you know, Craig, you have a problem. You have a problem with your epistemology. He's like, "What is that word? I've never heard that." I said, "Epistemology is just the basic idea of the science, the philosophical science of how we know something to be true." And I said, "Your problem is is that you don't know if God is bothered by you or not. You're just guessing." You're just making assumptions about the character of God. You're not even sure what his name is. You're just like, there's some sort of higher power out of these experiences. So therefore, God is true. And he kind of chuckled for a second. He said, Well, you know, Sam, I, I trust my gut. My gut is never wrong. And I said, That is not true. Your gut is wrong. There's no way. Are you telling me you're never wrong? You know? And then he kind of gave me like a smirk, right? Of course you're wrong. I was like, Craig. You're a dentist, so you know what it means to be a specialist. So you've studied many, many hours to be a specialist in your field. Listen, Craig, you know less than 1% of all that there is to know in the entire universe. Of course you're wrong about things. Of course your gut is wrong. The reality is, Craig, because you understand less than 1% of all there is to know in the universe, that means there's going to be times you're going to get things right, and a lot of times you're going to get things wrong. I'm just trying to push to his assumptions about, about God and about his, about life. And, and he said, well, you know, Sam, you know, I'm spiritual, not religious. I was like, okay, well, tell me about that. That's a common cliche that people say. What do you mean by that? Well, and he basically just said, you know, I don't really have faith. I'm not into that faith kind of stuff. I'm too, like, hands-on to believe in some sort of thing. Because his understanding of faith is like a lot of Americans. Faith is wishing. If you understand the Bible teaching on faith, it's not wishing. Faith is assurance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Notice those words? Assurance evidence. Those aren't like guesses and wishes. Oh, I just hope. Hey, oh, I know You know, this is not gonna happen, but just have faith, right? You know, that's the way the world uses it. Uh, the great leap of faith, right? So he thinks faith is just like this imaginary thing. So, so I, I'm starting to ramble, but, but let me get to the point. Eventually we get to the point where Craig um, says, well, Sam, 10 years ago, I rented from the library the great courses on the Bible. Have you guys ever seen the great courses? They're advertised on Audible and stuff like that. So there's just a big series of all these different courses. All right, three people read. Okay, great. Uh, The great courses, and and they have different things on all kinds of subjects, okay? But they also have a religious series, and they have two um, audio teachings on the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he said, Sam, I took those CDs and for three days, I studied those CDs over and over again. I took tons of notes. And you know what, Sam? At the end of it, I learned so much. I, did, I had so many more questions and answers. And at the end of those three days, I decided there's just too many questions and contradictions in the Bible that I can't trust it to be God's word. I said, oh man, well, I'm really grateful that you spent some time studying God's word. Very few people do that. I commend you to do that. And then he just started to share with me some of the um, questions he had about the Bible, some of the seemingly contradictions, some of the doubts that he had about why God's word couldn't be God's word. And as I'm listening, I'm like, "Well, oh, there's an answer for that, there's an answer for that. An answer. I'm just thinking. Craig, have you ever heard of Google, right? I'm just thinking these things. Like, He was giving me some of the worst objections to the Bible that even like, skeptics don't use anymore because they're so bad. And I'm just like, Craig, and I just quickly start to answer some of them and say, Craig, they're really good. And, I, and I'm not being, like, smug to him. I'm being very compassionate. I have, I have compassion for this man. I said, Craig, there are a lot of really satisfactory answers to a lot of the objections you just listed. Have you ever spent any time researching any of the alternatives to the point of view that you studied? And he said, No. What he doesn't understand that the great courses of those two programs that uh, the, the Old Testament and New Testament professors that taught the courses that he learned are very, very naturalistic liberal scholars. They don't understand the resurrection of Christ. They don't understand miracles or anything like that. And they have been thoroughly debunked by many people. But all Craig got is one perspective. So I said, Craig, you know, there's a lot of really good answers for all that. I would be happy to share some with you if there's a lot of good stuff. And he says, I don't have time for that. I don't have time for that. I'm not going to research that stuff, Sam. And we went back and forth, so I'm trying to skip some highlights. But I said, Craig, can you at least admit to me that you cannot say that you are being intellectually honest about your position? And you cannot be confident in your position? Because this is what I'm literally saying. I'm saying, listen, Craig, I've studied the Bible on a formal level for like 13 years. Okay? It's my full-time job. Every single thing you just had objections for, I actually have answers for. Do you want to hear it? And he was like, no. (laughs) So does Craig actually have genuine questions? No, he doesn't. What Craig did is what a lot of people do and what I do. We all do. It's unavoidable is that we have confirmation biases. We go into certain situations, whether it's a relationship or understanding some sort of new science or something in our life with a predetermined conclusion, right? This is what happens with elections, This is what happens in our political environment. This is what happens every single time. You hear a shooting on on the news is that every single person is really exposed both on the left and the right very quickly that we all have confirmation bias and it's owning us. We want a certain predetermined conclusion and so therefore we read evidence looking for what would confirm our bias, right? We've all done it. It's a lot easier to see other people doing it than us, right? It's hard to know when you're deceived. Because being deceived, you don't know you're being deceived. And so here's the deal with Craig. He had questions that came up to his heart. But you know what? The questions that came up to him that, wrestled, that he wrestled with, that he thought the Bible wasn't legit, actually served Craig. It gave him the freedom to not trust God's word. It gave him the freedom to live just selfishly. All Craig does is golf. All he does is he flies to his different homes and all day long he just plays. He plays, he plays, he plays. He spends all his money on himself. Well, that's really convenient, Craig. I'm giving you right now answers, potential answers. And you're saying, no, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want that. And I share this story with Craig, not because I look down on Craig. I got his number. We're gonna try, I'm gonna try to golf with him more. I hope to have more conversations. And as we continue to talk more and more later on, he starts sharing about his estranged relationship with his eldest daughter and more about his life and the perfection that he presented in the beginning start to crumble. So I'm praying for Craig. I love Craig. I have compassion for Craig. But what Craig revealed to me in that little conversation is what I see in so many of us, especially when we think about God's word. I remember in high school, there was a documentary called Zeitgeist and it talked about different things theories and different things about Jesus. And it said something about Jesus actually was a copy of Horus. Horus was an Egyptian God and had 12 disciples and did miracles. And if you watch the documentary and you don't know your Bible very well, and you don't know history well, you're like, this is crazy. It basically de- debunks the Bible. And I remember as a senior in high school freaking out. Anybody watch this documentary? It's, it's old now, right? Oh, you remember that one? I remember freaking out. Did you freak out when you saw it first? Yeah, it was like, oh my goodness. But you know what? Because I'm a seeker of truth, a lover of truth, I said, okay, all right, you made a insulin claim. And so what do you do with insulin claims? You weigh evidence. So I started to weigh evidence. So I started to research. Oh, actually, this person has been thoroughly debunked by even skeptics. But if you just hear it all presented nice and neat on the history channel, then it just sounds so persuasive, doesn't it? And so, so I, I, I'm beating a dead horse, but I hopefully you see that there are a lot of reasons um, that, of why we believe and disbelieve about things. And before we get into more about God's word, I want to spend a little bit more preliminary time. I want to give you three reasons that influence why we believe or disbelieve. Three, infla- three reasons, it's gone on the screen. Tim Keller helped me understand this. Intellectual reasons, personal reasons, social or cultural reasons. All three of those influences. Every single one of us are influenced by one or more of them all at the same time and sometimes one of them in increasing measure. Let me, let me explain this to you. And, and the reason why I'm setting all this foundation is a lot of times we blindly believe things or think about things and we don't know why we do. So I'm trying to help us think about why we think. How you think about the Bible, how you think about belief. Well, first of all, intellectual reasons. Some of of you here believe in this Bible, believe in the truths of Jesus, the words and the claims of Jesus, because you find the evidence, intellectual reasons, believable. And yet, on the other hand, some of you do not believe because you find the intellectual reasons for belief insurmountable, hard to believe. Believers see objections to belief in God or Christianity, and you find them surmountable. It makes sense to you intellectually. See, personal reasons are a big one also, personal reasons. Uh, One person has a tragic, traumatic situation in their life, and because of this significant pain, a divorce, an abuse, something in their life, a war, they come to the conclusion God cannot be real. God cannot be real because of how bad and how twisted and evil this world is. Another person going through the same situation can experience all the pain and they come to a completely different conclusion. They say, this world is so hard. I need God. I need someone outside of me. I'm not equipped. I cannot handle all the pain and trauma. I need someone for answers. I need someone for help. Both are being heavily influenced by personal experiences. Some people have success in life. Everything goes well. Some people interpret like, well, who needs God? I'm doing pretty well. I'm my own God. Other people interpret it differently. They have success in life and they say, man, after I get all this, I'm still empty. There's, there's got to be something more to live for. Let me give you the final reason, social or cultural reasons. Listen, the people you most want to like you, the people you most depend on and need, the people whom you want most to accept you, that community you want to be part of, you will always find their beliefs more plausible to you. Right? Let me just give a quick example. Let's say you're really into a girl or guy. Super into them. Super good looking. Super attractive. You're into them. You're talking to them. You start hearing them say some crazy things. But because you're really into them, you're like, oh. Okay, I I can see that now, yeah, 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 aliens, okay, yeah, mm mm-hmm, yep, you're so good looking, yep, right? Right, we all have different situations that when you want to be accepted by someone, you find what they say highly plausible, not because what they said is logically coherent or persuasive, but because they are so attractive or because you want to be near them. Right? And on the other, other hand, if there's a community, a group of friends or people in your life whom you do not like, you do not want to associate with, let's say they have some beliefs. And let those, let's say those beliefs are insolent beliefs and they're actually true beliefs. In that case, you're going to find their beliefs highly implausible because you don't want to associate with them. So let's just be cl- clear about some of you here. Some of you here used to have faith or so-called faith, and then there are some friends in your school or in your community that you really wanted to get close to, and they weren't believers. They were sophisticated. They were beyond that. They were postmodern. They were whatever you want to label them. And so all of a sudden, their beliefs became very plausible, and your archaic beliefs of your family or your old friends became hard to believe. On the flip side, some of you maybe start going to a youth group, and all of a sudden, you're like, man, these people are really lovely, they love me. They're, they're wonderful. So all of a sudden, their beliefs became highly plausible. Are you tracking with me? Yeah. None of these things are determinative. What I mean by that is not one of these things are saying, oh, because you have that, therefore you have to be that. All I'm saying is that we're a complicated mixture of things. There's lots of things that influence us. And it's very dangerous to say, well, you know, for the atheists, the skeptics say, you know, I only believe because I have not seen enough empirical evidence in, the, in, in, in science, And yet you get to know them, and you hear that they grew up in the church. And they grew up in a very hypocritical, fundamentalist church that shoved fake gospel moral.
1: to be brutally honest
0: about different reasons that would cause or that would influence your beliefs. Because we all have them. And if you want to be intellectually honest and consistent, it takes a lot of painful work to be real about the different things that are at war inside of you, the different desires that are swaying what you believe. Again, not determinative, but influencing your beliefs. Some of you guys believe in Christ because you are surrounded by a community that believes in Christ, and you know that if you did not believe in Christ, you would be outcasted, you would be judged, and that drives your belief. And one day, you'll be part of another community when you graduate and move on that doesn't have that same kind of pressure, and therefore, your belief will go. That's one of the reasons why so many people walk, leave the faith, because they never had true faith. So I'm not just picking on the skeptics here. I'm picking on the Christian kids that grew up in church homes. you got to check, why do you believe what you believe? Is it social? Is it personal? Is it intellectual? And as I said before, it's a mixture of all. Now, that was 24 minutes of all of that. That was my introduction. And so I'm going to have to start speaking quicker and cutting on the fly let me give you a scope of where we're going. Whenever we talk about how do we know something is true, we get into the realm of apologetics. So if you guys have ever studied apologetics or learned about it, but the challenge with that Pandora's box is that for every single one of you, if I had time to sit down with you, you guys all have different doubts and questions. Some of them are significant where it's debilitating your faith. You're like, I can't believe because I don't understand this. And some of you are like, you know, I believe, but I just struggle with some of these things. And in the limitation of our time this evening, I cannot answer any one of them conclusively. There's a lot of different things about the legitimacy of the Bible I just can't get into right now. I can't cover it faithfully. And if you understand anything about being an expert in something, you can't be faithful, giving little pat one-liner answers. Those are not sufficient. And many of you grew up in Christian communities and have grown up in Christian communities that are really comfortable giving little quick one-liner answers that satisfy Christians who already came to that conclusion and don't, aren't really wrestling. And for those who are actually wrestling, it frustrates them and exasperates them. These little stereotypical little cliches. I'm not going to do that for you. I respect you too much. I respect experts too much. This stuff can get too complicated, and I'm not dodging any of it. Those questions are valuable, and you should search them out. We can talk about the theological argument. We can understand ethics, modern-day ethics, understand gender theology and gender dysphoria and understand how the Bible speaks into all the crazy hot topics, but I can't get into all that. And the moment you talk about, is this true? Oftentimes what it does, it stirs up every question that we have. So instead of doing that, I'm going to put up a PowerPoint about a handful of resources from experts, starting from more accessible at the teen level to more dense and 700 pages long kind of books. And the reason why I'm throwing these up here is because I am wondering if there's any of you here, like Craig, who have questions about the Bible, questions about hot topic issues, and you don't find the answers that you have found so far satisfactory, you feel like there's more. I can't break all this stuff down, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw a softball to you and say, listen, if you truly are a seeker, then you go search down some of the more reputable resources out there if you want to wrestle. So let me give you 10 questions is actually a bridge version from the adult version about Christianity, talking about slavery, talking about is the Bible, can you take the Bible literally, you know, different, different gender questions, really helpful, really winsome. Second question, the reason for God, this is a little bit more advanced and, and, and helpful by Tim Keller, reasons for God. The next one is two dozen or so arguments for God. So uh, Alvin Plantiga, he created, he did a lecture years ago on 24 reasons you can believe in God. And what Tim Keller talks about is that instead of thinking about evidence for God, because if you look at all 24 arguments for the existence of God in isolation, each one of them, you could find some sort of rational wiggle room argument of how that cannot be true. But what you do is if you look at the overall overwhelming weight of all of these clues of 24 clues of the existence of God, and you look at them, honestly, they're overwhelming. So when I think about the evidence of God, I like the word clue. So if you look at the reason of God, he talks about thinking about clues. The next one is the historical reliability of the New Testament. This is like 700 pages. If you're like, I don't, I don't know, how do we know the Bible is legitimately God's word? You know, I don't know. Well, then read 700 pages about it. Uh, he'll tell you all the different reasons, right? Don't, don't depend on a little TikTok answer that just gives you like a little one-liner just to justify your unbelief. Finally, the case of the resurrection of Jesus. A lot of the case of Christ comes from this book by Gary Habermas, understanding the resurrection and the empty tomb is one of the most persuasive um, evidences of the resurrection of Jesus and the legitimacy of all of this as well. So if you're a skeptic or if, when I say a skeptic, I'm, I'm a skeptic. I struggled with all this stuff and I still do. I'm not like a easily, like, I don't, I don't I'm not naive. I like, I, I'm, I'm a person who's highly critical. So I've wrestled with this. Like I said in my prayer earlier, I've cried on my knees and God, is this really you? Are you really real? And so I've, I've come to conclusions over years of wrestle and so I, I just want to challenge you and welcome you to wrestle and don't be lazy. Don't just have one little one-liner, what about this? As if you're the first person who ever thought about that objection. Like This stuff has been around for thousands of years. You don't think people have thought about good answers to them? And if your answer and your search is a quick Wikipedia search, that's not cutting it. Work hard. Don't be intellectually lazy. And if you are a skeptic and you're like, I don't know if this is about God, at least say, you know, and I don't care to know. Just be honest about it. Don't say like you you've done the hard work when you haven't. All right. Man, that is a lot of beating that horse. Okay. All right. Now let me, let's finally get into some of the meat of this. So instead of vainly trying to accomplish what experts can only do in a long uh, series of lectures or books, I'm going to just try to accomplish one thing and just talk about the truth of God's word. What does the word of God say about itself and how do we have confidence these are actually God's words? Okay, let's fly. Let me remind you where we came from. God is the author of truth. God is the uncreated creator of all things, and therefore he's the author of reality. And if you're the author of reality, then you get to define what is truth, because truth is in accordance with reality. He defines what is true, and us as creatures, we don't define what is true. And yet that is our struggle that all of us are always going to have till the day we die, even born-again Christians, is that we're going to try to wrestle with God to define our truth, our supremacy. All of us will struggle with that. God is the one who defines what is good and what is evil, not us. We are finite. We are in the dark without light. We are stumbling around, and we need outside light to tell us what is true, to illuminate our minds and our lives, our hearts, to understand truth. And the good news, like I said this morning, is that God did not leave us stumbling around in the dark, laughing at us. Oh, look at He hit his shin again on that coffee table. Ha! No, he's he came into the darkness and brought light right to us, got in our mess, took on our flesh. He revealed himself in his only son and brought light to this dark world. And if we know his words, we have his light, we have access to truth. But so, So let me get to this. What does the Bible say about itself? I'm going to go over like five or six passages really quickly, and I'm praying that God's word would have an effect on you. So we're going to start flying through these. So would you look at these in line with me, Psalm 119, 160. What does the Bible say about itself? The very essence of your words is truth. All of your just regulations will stand forever. Forever. Yes, thank you. I was waiting for someone to you know, pick up that sandlot reference. One of the things about modern day notions of truth is that they shift with the culture, they shift with time oh yeah, yeah, that was true back then, but no, 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 this is actually true now. No, no, God's word is everlasting. It doesn't shift, it doesn't change. Next verse, your eternal word, oh Yahweh, oh Lord, stands firm in the heaven. It doesn't change, it's eternal. 2 Peter 1.21, this is a a glimpse of how the Bible came to be. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So it was not something man did, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If you understand the Greek language here, it's this language about breath. They were being breathed along. The Holy Spirit was leading them. 2 Timothy 3.16, using this kind of language of breath as well. All scriptures inspired by God. And it's useful to teach us what is true. This word inspired is, is the word ex, expired, really. It, it, God's breath coming out. And it's useful to teach us what is true. To make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong. Teach us to do what is right. Now in the next three verses I'm going to highlight, we're going to see that the Bible is a historical document. It's historically, it's a historical document carefully brought together by eyewitnesses trying to give you certainty for your faith. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4. Actually, I'd love for you to read this out loud with me because I think it's so helpful. So I know, I know this is, is getting long, but I'm track, you, you guys are with me, so good job. I'm loving it. You guys are watching with me, listening along. Some of you are standing up because you're tired, and I love that. That's so good. I did that in college all the time. I was always tired, always standing. All right, Luke 1, 1 through 4, read with me. Many people... Theophilus, be certain. I knew you guys were going to stumble with Theophilus. Listen, when you read that, does that sound like just wishful thinking? Great leaps of faith? Oh, dear uh, Theophilus, I I wrote something that I think is true, but you should have faith and believe, even though it goes contrary to all the evidence that you know. No, what is he saying? Uh, I've investigated everything carefully there's eyewitnesses and i'm going to list a bunch of names throughout the gospel of luke of people who are still alive so that if you discount my uh, account you could go ask them because they're alive and they'll tell you if i'm telling the truth or not why what's the purpose so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught see the bible was not written just for you to just hope pie in the sky it's for people who 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 don't have a brain who don't have any intellectual acumen who can just hope in things that even though there's no com, uh, evidence to Affirm them, no, 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 the Bible was written carefully with eyewitnesses about real historical events. The gospel is a proclamation of an event that happened. We see this also in the gospel of John, John nineteen thirty five. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you also may continue to believe. John 21, 24, this disciple is one who testifies to these events, events, and have, has recorded them here, and we know that this account of these things is accurate. I know that may felt like overkill, but, but do you see the overwhelming, like consistent theme here and all that? Like this is true this is God's word. It's been confirmed. It has been carefully researched with eyewitnesses. This is no ice cream kind of truth of, of my preference. It's insulin kind of claims. Scripture is either true or it's false. And you may disagree that this is actually God's word, but you cannot say that God's word doesn't say it's God's word. Right, like you at least could say that if you're struggling, you're skeptic, you're not sure, you you can't say that the Bible doesn't claim to be God's words. But then there lies the a very important question: is that how do we know this is God's word? Now, before we get into that, because I lost train in my notes, my my thought, I want to make a quick, quick clarification. The Bible does not tell us everything we need to know about every subject. Don't put burdens on the Bible that it's not claiming to try to answer or try to alleviate. The Bible claims that it's going to give you everything you need to know about knowing God and having a relationship with him and what his character is like and what his purpose is and what he's doing on the earth and what he requires of us. So you don't need to go to the Bible for cookbook recipes and all the kind of stuff, and so when we claim it's God's word, it is specific to the things God said he's communicating to us. Now, I want to talk about God's word as the ultimate authority, because if God's words, if this Bible is from God, and God defines truth, then God's word is everyone's final authority about what is true. Does that logic follow? Like, even if you disagree if God is real or not, but would you follow that logic? If God created the world, he defines logic. And if he defines reality, and if he defines reality, he defines truth. And if these are actually God's words, then this is our authority of what is true. You tracking with me? Okay? Okay, good. I think so. I think one kid went like this. So, but (laughs) maybe he meant this. So this is our final authority, not our reason, though God-given and important, not our experiences, though God-given and important and valuable, not even our feelings, though those are God-given and important. Everything in the world, everything in our faculties submits to this as the final authority of what is true and what is right. But some of you may say, what about science? Science is great. Science rocks, right? But new scientific or historical facts may cause us to re-examine our interpretation of Scripture because we are all fallible. We make mistakes. We have blind spots. And throughout church history, there are times that the scientific community helped the church re-look at texts that they were not seeing correctly. But that was not a problem with the Bible. It was the problem with the people. Does that make sense? Science will never contradict the Bible, but what it will do is help us recheck our assumptions because we're all product of our times. We all have blind spots that we will, without meaning to, project upon the Bible. But if there's ever a time where we're rightly interpreting the Bible and rightly interpreting the science, then you go with the Bible. Because here's the reality. If you are a student, if you're a scientist, you know that science has changed over the years, they've made revisions. They've been saying, oh, you know, we thought this, but it actually is this. And so, you know, what is never changing, never wrong is God's word. We can be wrong about God's word and we will indeed be wrong, right? But this isn't wrong. We're the problem, not this. And I, let, let me just say this over the years, as I studied the Bible, I've had many times where I was like, oh, there's a contradiction here. I don't know how to believe this God. And then I just kept reading the Bible more. And then the next year when I got through it, I'm like, oh, I, make, I understand that now because I just didn't understand it. So is the Bible's problem or is my problem? It's my problem. I just didn't understand the Bible well. I was a poor reader. I was forgetting other realities. So again, guys, we need um, to come with a humility to know that this is God's word, infallible word, and we're coming humbly knowing that we're going to misunderstand it. We're going to make interpretive errors. We're a product of our times, but then God's word will always be true. Now, I know some of you guys may say, Sam, that is circular reasoning. What is circular reasoning? Well, let me give you an example. Um, Imagine if I wrote a book. Sam Choi wrote a book. And I wrote in the book, and I said, this is the ultimate authority for all people's life. Signed, Sam Choi. And I say, guys, look. Look at this book. It says it's your authority. You're like, what? That's not my authority. I said, but mm -mm. it says it in the book. It says it's the authority, so therefore it's your authority. It's in the book. Do you see how preposterous that is? That's circular reasoning. Now, how is the Bible not circular reasoning? Because what I'm saying is that the Bible says it's, it's the ultimate authority, therefore it's the ultimate authority. How is that not circular reasoning? Are some of you guys dizzy as I'm saying all this? This is good. Are some of you guys saying, yeah, talk about that. How is that not? I've been wondering about that. Well, let me clarify some things. In short, I would say there's a lot to say here is that there are many internal and external reasons to believe the validity of the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus, the historicity of Christ. It's not circular because there's both internal and external reasons. Me writing a little pamphlet and saying it's my word and it's the final authority is just me. But the Bible has internal reasons, like the impeccable manuscript evidence. The internally co- internal coherence of the scriptures. The fact that the, the Bible authors re- consistently share details that they should not share unless it's true. Details that make them look stupid, make them look bad. Why would they write those things unless they were true? Time and time again, how the word of God proved things in, in the outside world, like science was actually wrong and was trying to catch up. Scriptures that pre- call the disciples to live lives of poverty and suffering? Why would they do that? Why would 11 out of 12 apostles die for a lie and all get martyred if they knew it was a lie? Things like that just doesn't make sense. There's an internal a testament uh, testifying of the legitimacy of the Bible. The Bible answers sufficiently the big questions in life that everyone wrestles with. The Bible has numerous prophecies that have been fulfilled all throughout history. The Bible has an incredible history of life transformation. On and on again, I can go, there's more internal proofs. Now let's talk about external authorities and proofs. These can be helpful. You read something, oh, archaeologists just dug up a new thing that confirmed something in the Bible and numbers, that's so cool, right? The Bible's true again. Yay, another another, another, um, win for the Bible, right? That stuff can be helpful. But let me say something clearly. The Bible does not need external authorities to confirm that it's the authority. And what I mean by that is if it, if it's true that God's word is the ultimate authority, then having other authorities, lesser authorities affirm its legitimacy actually takes away from its authority. You don't need other people to affirm you if you are the greatest authority. Now, but, but follow me if you are the ultimate authority and you are true, then wouldn't it follow that there would be a ton of external authorities that would also corroborate with your truths? Yeah. And we found that. We've seen that in science. We've seen that in archaeology. We've seen that in astrology. We've seen that in biology. We've seen that over and over again throughout the world history, that there are external realities about the world that have confirmed and affirmed, and I shouldn't say confirmed, affirmed and corroborated the truths of the scripture. Because it's true. See, just like in personal experience, people, people will, will wrongly say, I believe the Bible is true because it works for me. That's Wrong. That's pragmatism, because a, a Buddhist can say, I'm a Buddhist because it works for me. No, 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 no. It works for you because it's true, not because it works for you. Yeah. I, it, I know this is a little heady. Are, are you guys tracking with me? Yeah. This is important stuff, because it's, we're swimming in this stuff. If you want to understand more about the Bible's self-authenticating nature... Real quick slide. Michael Kruger, he he did like an hour lecture that you can just Google Michael Kruger. The Bible is self-authenticating. Just Google that and you can listen to a lecture on that if you want. Again, I'm just, I can't give you everything here. There's too much for me to talk to you about and I'm already out of time. (laughs) So let me ask you a really great question. How do I know this is God's word? Let's say you're following me and you say, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm following the logical progression, but how do I know this is actually God's word? all right? Because skeptics will say oftentimes that this has been changed. Megan Fade even talked about that, right? People will often say, well, you know the telephone game, right? You guys all know the telephone game. I tell you something, I tell you something, and whisper in your ear, and then you tell them, tell them, boom, 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 boom. And by the time it gets to the end, it's like some crazy dirty joke, right? It makes no sense, right? <laughs> skeptics hear that. They're like, that's how the Bible was transmitted. How do we know this Bible hasn't been changed and, trans- and, and, and manipulated by people and power and this and this? And skeptics hear that and they're like, huh, yeah, you're right, the Bible isn't true, and they just leave it like that. Like, that alone should be sufficient. What they don't understand, two different things about the Bible's transmission. Let me explain it. How the Bible has been preserved. Okay. Well, first of all, we have to understand that we, the Bible, was transferred to each generation, not linearly. Okay, what I mean by not linearly, I'm not even saying that word right, is it wasn't like, hey, Bible. And then she, maybe 50 years later, says, oh, grandkids, come here. Here's my Bible, right? One by one by one. No, no, no. The way the Bible spread and was legitimized in the very beginning and and for centuries after was like, here, 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 here. All of you guys copy this. And then all of you guys do what? Yep. Copy it and share it with other people. And then within a short period of time, boom, it's spread out. It's in multiple languages, multiple cultures, multiple people groups, multiple different areas, and it's spread out like that. It's not just linear, where it's just one person breaks the chain and they manipulate. So if I, the linear thinking is, I give it to you, and then you take it, and you're like, hey, I'm going to put a dirty joke here, and I'm going to change this. And oh, yes, actually, God is this. And, 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 and you know, what's your name? Haley is the best name, and God loves Haley's more than everyone else, right? And oh man, if we just, if we caught that one mistake there, we would have an accurate Bible, but we're screwed because one person, Haley, screwed it up in the linear line. No, 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 the Bible wasn't transmitted like that. It was like, boom, spread out, and it got spread, and got spread, and got spread, and got spread, and this is going to be really important because I want to talk to you about that. The second thing, the objection that the Bible is like telephone is dependent on this mindset that it's oral only. Oral tradition and oral teaching can be easily mistaken and manipulated, right? Because you could hear someone say something and misunderstand. It's a lot harder to mistake things when they're written. Okay, so those are two ways that the telephone kind of game objection doesn't actually fit the history of the Bible. Now, here's the question. How do we know the Bible? Bible has been preserved accurately. Now, if you want a fancy term, the term is called textual criticism. Okay. Can you say that with me? Textual criticism. I just realized you guys don't have Kajabi tonight, right? Probably not. They, you all? They will? Dang. Okay. All right. I okay. I, I got to finish quickly. All right. All right. Textual criticism. This is a science. It's a non-Christian discipline an academic discipline where you study manuscripts and compare and contrast them to to get an accurate picture of the original autograph. Autograph is the original document. Okay, so how do we know that the Bible wasn't changed? How do we know Bible is God's word? Well, let me share a story that I heard from a guy named Alan Schliemann. Okay, Aunt Sally's secret sauce. Let me tell you about Aunt Sally. Aunt Sally gets in a vision one day, a dream, this magic elixir, this elixir sauce that if she drinks it, she will have beautiful youth. And she's like 90, but then she, you, she drinks it, she creates this, and she drinks it, and she starts looking like she's 70. And then 60 and 50, and people are like, dang, Sally, you looking good, what you doing? She's like, man, guys, I got this special, special elixir. So her three friends are like, man, Sally, can you, can you give me some of that? And she's like, yeah, I got, I got you, I got you. So she shares her secret recipe. Um, and they're all old, so they, they write it down by hand, okay? So all these three grandmas now are looking really fine, really good, right? They're looking good. They're drinking this elixir. They're looking better, and then all of a sudden, they share with their friends. Their, friend, their friends are like, hey, Janet. Hey, Agatha. Hey, you guys are looking good. Martha, great. Great looking, whatever, but hey, and then all of a sudden, they start spreading, and they start sharing it, Sooner or later, a whole community of old women are looking great and looking fly, and they all have this recipe written by hand because they're all old and they don't have copying machines. Now, imagine Aunt Sally wakes up one day. She wakes up, and her recipe was eaten by her pet dog. She freaks out. I need my elixir, right? She's like the tangled mom. Like, she's freaking out, and she's like crazy, right? So she calls her three friends who she originally shared her recipe with. Like, hey, Agatha, Betsy, whatever your name, old person name, insert old person name, right? Hey, listen, I lost my recipe. And they're like, no way, I lost our recipe too. And they share their crazy story. So they got four recipes that are all disappeared and destroyed. So they start doing work. They frantically call around the community. And what they found out is that they found 26 copies of the original recipe from their friends. Now, they get these 26 copies. All these ladies are sitting around in this big table. They, they lay these all these copies, and they look at them, and they start comparing. They say, oh, look, they're, they're very similar. Oh, but this one adds this uh, mayonnaise. There's no mayonnaise. Or, or this person added this. Oh, this line is actually reversed, it said chop, then mix, instead of mix and chop. And You, you can look at all these 26 manuscripts, 26 copies, and start to see the differences and the similarities, right? If you had 25, 26 copies and they all said one thing, and then there was one thing that was always different, what would probably be accurate about, uh, what, what, what could you have confidence is actually in the original? The one thing that was, was in all of them, right? So can, can you imagine, here's a critical question, Do you think that if these grandmas work hard together, okay, I don't know why she's grandma. She was Aunt Sally. Now she's a grandma. Um, Worked hard together. They could accurately reproduce the original document. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, with 26 documents, they could figure out that they just got to rearrange that word because there's enough similarities that they can come together. Now, with the Bible, we have something better. We don't just have 26 copies. We have something better. Would you pop up that slide? In the Greek language, we have 5,856 manuscripts. And if you want to include all the different languages and fragments we have, we have 23,986 from multiple continents, multiple languages, cultures, people groups, and what you find when you compare all of them together is that there's a 99.5% textual purity, similarity. If the Bible is 20,000 lines, then only 40 lines are in doubt, about 400 words, and none of those words pertain to any significant doctrine or teaching from the Bible. I'll give you a quote from one of the foremost scholars in the world about just like everything, D.A. Carson. The purity of text is of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variance. Variance is a fancy word of the differences between the different manuscripts. Listen, there's a lot more to this. This could be a whole lecture, a whole sermon series, but I want to just give you a little glimpse to, to let you know the same words written and given to the original hearers of the Bible are the same words that you have in your hands. You can count on the words. You can take them to the bank. You can bank your whole entire life like Megan Fate has banked her entire life on it. If you want to learn more about the other topics about God's word, the sufficiency of God's word, the clarity of God's word, the narrative of God's word, the infallibility of God's word, there's a lot of things about God's word. Take out the, check out the book, Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung. There's a screen for that if you want to write that down. I'm giving you a lot of resources just to let you know there's a big world. There's a lot to know. Now, I really need to end. So here's the question. I'm going to cut the last part of my sermon. What will you do with God's word? It's not ice cream. It's insulin. You need to make a decision about what you will do about the claims of Christ and what this word says. Do not be casual about it. Do your work. What will you do about this word? Will you take it at every word? Will you obey every word? Will you treasure every word? Let's pray. Father, I, I'm sorry for going so late and I'm sorry to Hume, Father, and, uh, but I trust that in my lack of time management, and the tangents I went on, that you used them, that they were helpful, that different things I said met just one individual that really needed to hear that as they wrestle, honestly wrestle. And Lord, you are very secure. You can handle our doubts. You're not insecure. So I pray that these students would come to you with their struggles and doubts about your word. And would you confirm in them as they do the hard work and they, and they pray And they seek you that your spirit would confirm through internal and external witnesses that this is truly your word, your truth. And you define truth. And by that book, we can define and understand all of reality and all of truth. So help every student, help every leader, every pastor, every staff. Love your word more. Trust your word more. Memorize your word. Obey your word. Treasure your word. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks, guys, for your time.
1: Stay seated for me, guys. We got a couple things for you real quick. Thank you, Sam. He's making a funny face right now for how long he talked. But even with that, guys, I want you to understand that even if you didn't hear a single word Sam said tonight, Seeing the passion that he has and the dedication and commitment he has to sharing God's word with you guys. And he said it at the beginning of his time here this week, but he is so passionate about this word because it is true. And it is given to us. And it is a gift that we've been given this. And so I want to challenge you guys tonight. We have Kajabi this evening, but um, after we do Kajabi, when you guys go to cabin times, I want to challenge you guys with the question of, do you believe this? Sam gave us so much evidence tonight to tell you that this word is true. So if you don't, I'm curious, what's stopping you? Is it just because you've decided? You know what? It's not for me. Is it because you just choose not to hear the evidence and the truth of it? Or is it something else? And I want to encourage you guys to talk about that during cabin time this evening. And something that I think can be really scary about cabin time is asking questions. I was always afraid to ask questions when I was your age. But what I've learned about when I have a question is, chances are, someone else in the room probably has the same or a similar question. And so when you guys have cabin time or when you're in church time, I want to encourage you guys to be bold to ask questions, to not be afraid because you're worried about what someone else is going to think or say, but to be the bold one in the room to ask the questions. So here's what's going to happen. It's 9 o'clock. At 9.15, we will be starting Kajabi in the Heights. A couple things for you. We are in the middle of a power outage. (laughs) We currently have power in this building and this side of camp because we have a really awesome generator that keeps things running. Yeah, that's cool. We like that. However, when we go to the heights, the power will be out. So please use the restroom before you come to the heights. And when you get up there, we will go up. We will play our Kajabi rounds, and then we will send you guys to bed. There will be some soft pretzels for sale you guys can buy on your way out. But we're going to play Kajabi and then send you guys back to your rooms. Sound good? All right. We'll see you up there.